It's often difficult to develop a particular product, so we bought shipyards that already had one. And then we standardized it, introduced series production, and later also built it in low-wage countries. You're listening to On Course, a podcast from Daab about how a visionary idea turned a small company into one of the biggest shipbuilders in the world. My name is Volker Tempelman, and I've been fascinated by Dutch entrepreneurs at home and abroad for years. In this podcast, you'll hear a remarkable story about headwinds and perseverance, about daring and doing. It's 1976, seven years after the company was split up and Comer went his own way. A decision that appeared to have been a good one. The new Damen had sold nearly 400 boats. It was growing at breakneck speed. It had moved to a much bigger site in Gorkum. And with 100 new employees hired in short order, the workforce had doubled to more than 250. You might expect that would lead to the emergence of hierarchies. The old guard versus the new employees, managers versus workers. But nothing could be further from the truth. At the Gorkum site, there was a sense of everyone being in it together. There were no separate parking spaces for the management, for example. And whatever your role, everyone knew who you were and knew your name. And that's still true today. Damen was doing well in the mid-70s. It was clear that its approach, standardization and series production, had borne fruit. I clearly remember a board meeting in 1976. I was complaining about all kinds of things that hadn't been going well, when Kees Molenburg said, Kommer, you shouldn't be so negative, because you may never have a year as good as this one again. That year we built 156 boats, we had 90 million guilders in revenue and 18 million guilders net profit. In relative terms, we never achieved that kind of profit again. During the oil crisis, Damen was able to sell countless vessels to dredging companies, building harbors in the Middle East. And because a port cannot operate without workboats, such as tugs and pilot boats, those new port authorities also often became Damen customers. Damen was an attractive supplier because of their short delivery times, but also because they listened closely to their customers' wishes. Koen Boudestein, retired Damen Tugs director. When I worked at Damen in 1976, Kommer had already divided Damen into five geographical segments, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, Asia and the Americas. Over the years, I traveled to over a hundred different countries. There were years when I took 50 flights per year because we wanted to see for ourselves how the boats functioned and get feedback from customers. 
That was an integral part of the Diamond culture. At Diamond, we were growing because the market was global and we'd set up a sales operation on a global scale. Say we developed an ASD tug. We would get salespeople coming back from Central America saying customers there wanted a more compact tug. And we would look very closely at whether the requirements of those specific customers were echoed in other regions. If we saw that the market and our customers needed a different version, a new type was arranged. Dahman was constantly adding new series of standard workboats. In the meantime, demand just kept on increasing. But that didn't cause stress at Dahman. They were easily able to cope with the ever-increasing demand for vessels. And that had everything to do with their way of working. Dahman employed relatively few people and outsourced the construction of the hulls, initially to a nearby shipyard, Van der Giesen, but at a certain point, they couldn't handle it anymore. It was a good idea to outsource as much as possible, particularly in areas where others could do things better than us. So in the late 70s, we started looking into whether we could have the hulls built in Poland. I went there and outsourced them to a medium-sized shipyard, and that was quite successful. Low-wage countries are just cheaper in labor-intensive industries. It's as simple as that. Dahmen continued to expand their services. Under the name Dahmen Marine Services, they also started renting out vessels. This allowed the company to respond even more quickly to strong demand in the market. The establishment of DMS, as the company's new arm was known, was also the catalyst for the construction of various new types of stand tugs. Henny Dentom played an important role in setting up DMS. He was one of the few who chose to stay with Kommer when the company was split up in the late 60s. There were three of us. One of the three field service engineers was permanently stationed in Saudi Arabia and one in the Netherlands. He was responsible for a big fleet of vessels that DMS had rented out. That left me to plug the gaps everywhere else. I flew all over the world. Sometimes I'd get home from a trip to Libya or Egypt or wherever, and Hans Reitzma would turn up at my home on the Sunday evening. I'd be thinking he'd come to welcome me home and tell me I'd done a good job because I'd been away for three months. But actually, he was there to drop off airplane tickets for my next trip. So, come 10 a.m. on Monday, I'd be back at the airport. At the time, we were setting up a location abroad, in Bahrain, because by that point, we had a big concentration of vessels operating in the Middle East. We serviced them there and commissioned new boats that had been manufactured in the Netherlands. I think that was our first company outside the Netherlands. In the second half of the 70s, there were around 80 Dahmen vessels operating in the Middle East. But when they needed maintenance or repairs, it turned out there weren't many suitable shipyards in the region. So Dahmen set up a location in Bahrain. Employees there would maintain and repair vessels on site. We were the first. No one else had that. No other shipyard had its own remote service location to serve customers. 
But we wouldn't be diamond if we didn't choose to spread our wings some more. So the second foreign location soon followed. That was in Nigeria, which already had a concentration of vessels supplied by diamond. And each new step led to new insights and ideas. In order to be able to serve even more customers in different countries, Damen technical cooperation was set up. Basically, that meant Damen delivered a prefab construction kit that could be assembled at a local yard anywhere in the world under the supervision of an expert. Nigeria was a huge market. The Middle East was a very big market. So was Venezuela. So we delivered a lot to the oil-producing countries, which made us international early on. I realized that some countries had import restrictions or political reasons to build locally. I saw that there was a market there for us. If we had a logistics organization there, they could also deliver equipment to another yard and do the engineering. We could send over people to supervise and provide assistance during construction to really help build those boats. There was definitely a market for that. That was a hugely profitable activity right from the start, and it still is. You get a breakdown price, our package of materials and our engineering. And our foremen, our construction assistants, and all local costs would be in the local currency. Often you could also buy materials like steel locally. That meant that they could reduce their foreign currency liabilities, which was a real advantage. Damen continued to grow. The stand tugs and pushy cats in particular contributed to long-term revenue growth. And following Bahrain, they were now also building vessels at a yard in Nigeria. We built a brand new shipyard from scratch, which meant we were able to really deliver the level of service we wanted to give our customers in-house. Once a month, you'd call the head office to provide an update or to ask for money if it was needed to keep the company operating. Even then, Lagos was a city of 12 million people. There were so many cars on the roads that they had a system of even and uneven number plates. One day, all the cars with even numbers were allowed to drive. The next day, it was all the uneven numbers. Getting to the Palace Hotel usually meant being stuck in traffic for three or four hours. At the hotel, there was a telephone operator who used a switchboard and plugs to make a connection. At first, you had to bribe them. That's just how it was. You had to bribe the operator, and even then it might take two hours until you finally got through to the Netherlands. The whole operation might take you five and a half hours. So you try to collect as much information as possible and talk to everyone you needed to talk to in one go. It basically meant you had to run your own business yourself. There was no other way. But you did have to remember that you were responsible for the decisions you took. Henny occasionally came back to the Netherlands, where the company was as busy as ever. The atmosphere hadn't changed much since the early days. The attitude was still, let's put our shoulders to the wheel and hash out any disputes between us. 
Usually we did that in the company bar. We had some long evenings. But eventually we'd all be on the same page and it made us stronger, which is why we were able to grow so fast. I still remember incredibly long discussions at the bar, arguments that we failed to resolve, after which Comma would come over to me the next morning and tell me he was going to fire me. Of course, he never did. Those were great days. And when a boat was ready for delivery, there was always a celebration. All the differences we had had with the product groups during the run-up to the project and the project's completion were all set aside and we were one team again. We were united by a shared goal. Those were great moments and you need to celebrate them. My name is René Bergfens. The yard in Nigeria was a success, and that generated the confidence to expand further, especially in Africa, because Dame's way of working was suited to that market. René Bergfens started his career at Dame in 1983, in the sales department. The land where I was toen the countries I mainly focused on were Angola, Zaire, nowadays called the Democratic Republic of Congo, where back then President Mobutu held sway. I also dealt with Congo Brazzaville and Cameroon. Angola was another country that was very much on the rise. They had found oil there too, but at the same time it was in the throes of a civil war. It had a government supported by the Soviets that was fighting rebels supported by the United States. The government's strongholds were largely located along the coast, whereas the rebels held the interior. But to develop the country, they needed ships in the harbors to transport people and equipment. We had very intensive contacts with the technical people at Daman, but also with the Dutch embassy in Angola the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Foreign Aid Department. That was a very intensive process, but it worked out well. We must have carried out three or four large successful projects for Diamond there. We aimed to sell standardized designs and boats from stock. There was a lot of demand for that in Africa. The boats we built were very suitable for that type of work and those kinds of harbors both the smaller workboats and the bigger tugs and pilot boats. It wasn't really that hard. The biggest challenge was actually finalizing the sales, to make sure the money was there, to get the ministries to agree, with all the bureaucratic processes that were involved. That actually was the biggest challenge. That was actually the biggest challenge. Meanwhile, back at home, the Dutch economy was slowly recovering from the oil crisis. But Damen was doing a lot better, mainly because by now, the company was barely dependent on the domestic market. Sales abroad generated growth and led to a succession of new series of vessels. Even so, Damen had not given up on the Netherlands, far from it. Kommer wanted to expand at home, and he had an original approach to finding out which places would be most suitable, says maritime historian Joke Korteweg. 
Toen was er dus zoveel in de markt dat hij... There were so many options that he hired a plane and used it to fly over all the shipyards that were for sale in the Netherlands. Just to have a bird's eye view of what kinds of sites they were. Their locations and whether they were worth acquiring. Those photos were put into a photo album, which provided an overview of shipyards that might be of interest to Damen. Interessant zou het kunnen zijn voor Damen. Elk klein werfje, ik heb het nog steeds. I took aerial photos of every little yard. I still have them. It was really hard to find industrial sites with access to water. It still is. If you wanted to set up a shipyard today, I really wouldn't know how you'd go about it. It's not straightforward. Kommer had good reason to expand. After specializing in small workboats for many years, Damen was now building much bigger seagoing vessels, and they were too big for the yard in Gorkum. Given our sales organization, our reputation and our branding, we could easily have sold more ships, but we couldn't build them ourselves. So we acquired other yards. It's often difficult to develop a particular product, so we bought shipyards that already had one. And then we standardized it, introduced series production, and later also built it in low-wage countries. Damen went on an acquisition spree. First up in 1981 was the Bodeves shipyard in Bergen, followed by the Bijholt yard in Foxhall, both in the northern part of the country. Over the next few years, they were followed by various other specialist shipyards. One of them was Van der Giesen, which had previously built hulls for Damen. We acquired Van der Giesen in 1983. They manufactured nozzles for us, and they had developed all kinds of modern machinery. I didn't want them to start selling to others too, so I bought the company. Aside from those acquisitions, this was a turbulent time for the Dutch shipbuilding industry. Whereas Damen was doing well, other yards in the Netherlands were having a tough time. Way back in the 50s, Japan started making modern investments in shipbuilding facilities, in what were then low-wage countries, with hard-working populations. That was in stark contrast to the big European yards that were poorly organized. They had high labor costs and a poor working mentality. During that time, I once visited Wilton Feyenoord, a yard that now belongs to Damen. Back then, there were thousands of people working there. I say working. Most of them were either on their way to the canteen or back again. It was chaos. They couldn't compete and were kept afloat by government subsidies. The government basically wanted one thing, to preserve jobs in the big yards. So they forced the yards to work together. That meant merging shipyards that were in trouble with others that were still doing quite well. The RDM, Wilton Feyenoord, the Schelde, and Verolme Yards, and the NDSM Yard in Amsterdam were merged to create the massive RSV conglomerate. The government then appointed managers with no background in shipbuilding. But if you don't know the business, it's bound to end up as a fiasco. Which meant the government now also had to start supporting those companies. 
Technos werd gedaan, heel ruimhartig. Which it did on a vast scale. From the 1970s until 1983, approximately 2.7 billion guilders were pumped into the RSV conglomerate. That was a huge sum, and because so much money had already been put into it, it also became harder to end the subsidies, because that would have spelled the end for RSV. But in 1983, the government nevertheless allowed the company to go bust. Naturally, that led to a lot of questions in Parliament, along the lines of, what on earth have we been doing and why? Which in turn led to a parliamentary inquiry. The inquiry was a pure soap opera. It was broadcast on TV, and it was unbelievable. It dredged up a lot of stuff, and there was plenty of criticism of everyone involved. Ministers were blamed, but so was Parliament itself, because they should have kept a closer eye on things. All the criticism of government support for the shipbuilding industry basically came together in that affair. As a result, the government became so cautious that they decided not to give any more support to shipbuilding at all. And in the phase... Of course, Daman was also operating during that period, but they weren't a major shipbuilder yet. So they weren't of interest to the government. They kind of fell under the radar. For instance, in the 1970s, Daman expanded into the Middle East in the wake of the dredging companies. Harbors were being built there and the oil industry was booming. So while the Netherlands suffered under the oil crisis, a company like Daman didn't. That meant there was no question of government subsidies or of takeovers because they were much too small to be merged with the big conglomerates. You could say that Dahmen stayed under the radar for a long time, but that changed when the Dutch shipbuilding industry got into serious difficulty. Suddenly, Dahmen emerged as a particularly progressive player in the eyes of the government. Before then, that wasn't the case. They had simply been a small yard. But now that the big yards had gone bust or disappeared, Daman suddenly became the model of entrepreneurship. They had the formula for success. Daman's way of operating was even praised by the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Kummer's philosophy was to do what a car manufacturer would do. He gave the boat types numbers or names. No other shipbuilder in the Netherlands was doing that back then. The customer usually gave their ship a female name. But Daman was geared towards series production. The numbers he gave the boats were seen by customers as a mark of quality and speed of delivery. The government recognized that that commercial approach was the way forward for the sector. So Daman gained a distinct profile within the Dutch shipbuilding industry, with its own approach and a clear perspective on the sector. In an interview with journalist Isra Meijer in 1994, Kommer made clear what he thought of subsidies. The Dutch government should never have started giving them directly to the shipbuilding industry, he said. Instead, they should provide an infrastructure that allows companies to compete in market conditions. The government's role, he said, was to encourage entrepreneurs and not to get in their way.
The Dutch shipbuilding industry as a whole was not in a good place in the early 80s. But that did not apply to Damen. In fact, as usual, Damen took advantage of the circumstances. They got the opportunity to acquire parts of those big shipbuilding companies at a very good price. For example, the Schelde, part of the RSV conglomerate. It was an old but attractive shipyard that built ships for the Navy. So when Damen was looking to expand, they had a lot of options to choose from. What zullen we gaan doen wat uitbreiding betreft? By that point, Damen had already taken over a number of smaller yards. And those acquisitions had been a success. Which is why they now had the confidence to acquire bigger yards, including Wilton Feyenoord in 1984. Wilton Feyenoord was also an attractive proposition, because after the RSV affair, they still had two submarines on their order books. So if Damen were to take them over, that would instantly secure them a foothold in naval shipbuilding. On top of that, Wilton Feyenoord also had a repair yard, and Comer Damen had always been interested in the repair market. I could see from the photos that it was a great yard in terms of facilities. That takeover failed. It was ultimately prevented by the unions, who were still quite powerful then. And they only had one goal, preserving jobs. But of course, that was impossible because the big yards were going bust, and Damen was only interested in taking them over if significant cuts were made to the workforce. We wanted to reduce the workforce from 2,600 to 1,600. Everyone was dead set against that, but we actually had a really good plan. But that was not an option for the unions, which meant it wasn't an option for the government. The employees at the big Wilton Feyenoord yard couldn't accept the idea of being taken over by an upstart from Gorkum. It even led to threats. Kommer was given police protection. His sister Dina heard rumors that she would be kidnapped if she went to Schiedam, where Wilton Feyenoord was based. So the takeover of Wilton Feyenoord didn't go ahead. Around the same time, there was another potential acquisition involving de Schelde. But Damen's offer was considered too low, and so that too was rejected. What's interesting is that Damen was already considering expanding into two sectors that these days represent a very significant part of its operations. Repairs and naval shipbuilding. And marinebouw. Even though the acquisitions didn't go through, Kommer continued to work on his long-term plan diversifying the company's services. And he could still see plenty of opportunities. The Schelde was taken over by the government because they built naval vessels. Wilton Feyenoord was taken over by Schiedam municipality and Verolme was bought by Keppel in Singapore. And Eventually, those yards would become part of the Damen Group. It just took a bit longer. And now all the werven for us. Now, all those shipyards belong to us. The Damen Empire continued to grow. Kommer acquired even more shipyards after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. In some cases, he didn't even have to pay for them.
You've been listening to On Course, a podcast from Damen made by audio agency Airborne. Don't want to miss another episode? Subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Oh,